We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Turns out Garrett Cole is human after all. Ghostgate continues in New York. And Steph Curry has now responded to Michael Jordan and that Hall of Fame snub. It's a hump day home and home, a radio.com sports original. We are brought to you by ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Try ZipRecruiter right now. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash enter E-N-T-E-R. Home and home goes into your home markets today. We'll go to Houston to find out if Houston has a problem related to the World Series. Also, Atlanta, what happened to the Falcons? Our biggest disappointment on this NFL 100th season. And Sam Monson joins us from Pro Football Focus. Aaron Rodgers is not their highest-graded quarterback this past week, despite the fact he put up the perfect Rating the first of his career. lot to get to in the next couple of hours. I'm Dave Briggs, home in Connecticut. Ross Tucker, home in Pennsylvania. We start with the World Series. Houston, stunned by Washington. Garrett Cole's first loss since May 22nd. Around May 22nd, we were still all absorbing the ending of Avengers Endgame and what it meant. Yeah, I cried. That's how long ago it was. 19 straight starts. He is not just human. He was knocked around. Ross Tucker, it was Juan Soto, part of the youth movement in Major League Baseball. 20 years old, brash, cocky, confident. He goes opposite field and hits the train tracks, a stunning shot for any player, let alone a 20-year-old, also adds a two-run double and a 5-4 win. I think you are in on this World Series. Am I wrong? I am in on this World Series, number one, because I actually like playoff baseball, unlike regular season baseball. And number two, thanks to the Astros assistant GM, I don't know what, Taubman, I don't know. I think his name is Jackass Taubman. I'm not sure. Uh, he works. actually gave me a rooting interest. So thank you, Mr. Taubman. Now I have a rooting interest. Go Nats. I got the natitude, baby. I'm into the Nats because I now want the Astros to lose. By the way, just as an aside, Dave, I wanted the Astros to lose anyway. You know why? As a former player, I always want as many people as possible to experience the ultimate success, to experience winning it all. A lot of these Astros, when did the Astros win it? A couple years ago? 2017. Yeah, so a lot of these dudes yeah. just want it. So I, you know what? They don't need another parade, another trip to the White House, another we're the champions. No, no, no. Let the Nationals get it. Let the people of the D.C. area get it, not the people down in Houston. And by the way, you know what I was going to say, Dave, about the Astros losing with Cole on the mound? I was going to no. say, Houston, we have a problem. And then you know what I thought? How annoying would that be if you lived in Houston? How often do people say that? Anytime anything goes wrong with any Houston sports, it's 
Houston, we have – if I lived in Houston, I would want to take my pen, okay, like Joe Pesci in Goodfellas and stab you <laughs> in the eyeball if you said, Houston, we have a problem with me. That would annoy the shit out of me if I lived in Houston. So I'm going to try to not be that guy even though the Astros lost with their best pitcher that they needed to win with, Garrett Cole, I'm going to try to not be, Houston, we have a problem, guy. So I'll try not to do that. Because I know that if I lived in Houston, that would drive me apeshit, Dave. We need to dive into the origins of that as related to NASA and really book a segment on that perhaps next week maybe later this week that's a great idea you have there the good thing is they don't say it locally it's only a national problem all the local broadcasters are trained and taught and are well aware of the fact that you do not say it but we'll ask Landry Locker if I'm right on that to the, to the times that I've been in Houston I've been told many times that is not something we do here not something we say here a lot like Beantown in Boston Nobody calls it Beantown in Boston. Nobody. And if you do, you are clearly not one of them. Let's listen to how it went down, though, from Soto, the 20-year-old, to 35-year-old Ryan Zimmerman. These are the bookends of Washington Nationals history. Zimmerman, a lot of people call Mr. National because he was the first draft pick of this organization. Those are the two guys that did the damage off of Garrett Cole in this big 5-4 win. Let's hear how it went down, 106-7. The fan, they call it the Nats on occasion in D.C. with the call. Here's the wide of the pitch. Swing and a drive hit well. Deep center field. Way back goes Springer to the warning track. Looking up and it is gone. Goodbye. Bang. Soon goes the Z-Man to the deepest part of Minute Maid Park. Just to the left of the batter's eye in center field. Ryan Zimmerman with his second home run of the postseason cuts the Astros lead in half. The 1-0. Swinging a fly ball well hit to left field. Way back goes this one. It's got a chance. It's going, going, and long going up onto the railroad tracks. Welcome to the World Series, Juan Soto. Nationals tie the game at two as Juan Soto goes opposite field for a tape measure home run onto the railroad tracks. 3-2 to Soto. Swung on, hit in the inner left field. Brantley going back against the Crawford boxes off the wall. Bounces by him back toward the infield. Robles has scored. Rounding third is Rendon. He comes in to score. On a booming double off the left field wall by Juan Soto. He's driven in three runs in the game. The Nationals have scored three runs in the top of the fifth inning. It's now Washington 5 and Houston 2. Two little sets. He kicks, he delivers, and a swing and a fly ball left center field. Robles to his right on the run there. He's calling for it, and he makes the catch. And a curly W's in the books. The Nationals take game one of the 2019 World Series. Our final score, the Washington Nationals 5, the Houston Astros 4. That's how it sounded in D.C. 106.7, the fan. Great call there. We did not have the call of... Free tacos, but America, you do get free tacos. Thank you to Trey Turner. Stole a base in the first inning. So, October 30th, write it down. Put it in your Google calendar, 2 to 6. If you order a Doritos, Doritos Locos Taco on the Taco Bell app, you get a free taco. Ross, have you had 
a Doritos Locos taco. That sounds delicious. I have not. It does Ooh. sound delicious. And I got to tell you, really Dave, good. I'm not sure of another fast food restaurant that I've had this relationship with in the sense that when I was in high school and college, I went mm-hmm. to Taco Bell a lot, like a lot. Oh, yeah. And I a would lot. get I would get five double decker tacos. And I think it was less than five dollars. I would get five. I you I could literally a couple times found change underneath the seat cushions of my couch, gathered it all together, went with my buddy to Taco Bell, and had enough to get five double decker tacos. Love Taco oh. Bell. Always have. You know what's weird, Dave? I have probably eaten at Taco Bell once or twice in the last 10 years. I don't know why. Like, I I guess maybe it kind of grosses me out a little bit, but it doesn't. I just, if I'm going to eat something out, it's usually Chipotle or Panera or Chick-fil-A or Five Guys, really the 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 four horsemen of fast food restaurants really it's those four so taco bell's just low on the list i don't get there i've got nothing against taco bell i just i have not frequented it in so long but i will try to get there october 30th between 2 to 6 p.m. how many if do you, you get order free? through the app how's it just work? one just one. So, I mean, let's be honest. Who's going to go for one? I don't know. It's, it's a great promotion, man. Yeah. What if I have, what if I have like my daughters with me? Do we all get one free? Oh, so you had to stump me on the Taco Bell promotion. Yes. I think it is one per customer, per paying customer, but you'd have to order that on separate apps. I suppose if I had to guess, look, oh, you have Taco- to order it on the app. On the app. You have to order it on the app. That's uh, the thing that might throw people off. It's worth it to them. It's worth it to them. And they got us talking about it here. Because I pictured going to Taco Bell and ordering one. And then having my seven-year-old get in line and having her order one with my credit card. Then putting the six-year-old up there for order number three. Like if they had to be oh. separate orders, separate transactions. Just have my six-year-old say... Doritos, Loco, whatever, please. There ain't no way either of us is getting out of bed for a free taco. There's just no damn way. And we don't eat Taco Bell anymore because we're not hammered at 1.30 in the morning. And if we are, (laughs) we're probably home and stumbling around bugging our wife. And I could send you a few beef recalls, but that's why you don't pay attention to the news. Um, The Taco Bell promotion is one of the smartest things a a food company has done in sports. But 64% of teams that win game one go on to win the World Series. Problem is Astros drop game one in 2017 so they will not panic in this series especially with that pitching staff and the way they can knock the ball out of the yard let's hear from the manager aj hinch on garrett cole's first loss since may 22nd and the incredible young talent that is juan soto aj you hadn't uh lost a game that garrett cole had pitched in over three months he hadn't lost a game in five months did you always have a feeling that sooner or later a night like this was coming? And does a night like this put that streak in some kind of perspective? Well, I think I think he's been so good for so long that that you know there there builds this thought of invincibility and that it, that it's 
impossible to beat them. And, and so when you, when it happens, it's, it, it is a surprise to all of us because we've watched for months, this guy completely dominate the opposition. And, um, which is why I want to give credit to the Nats. I mean, they, they came in and put really good at bats up, especially coming into the game where he punches out a couple guys, you get some momentum and energy in this building. He feeds off that they were disciplined. The Suzuki walk kind of opened up everything. It's not something that he normally does. And, and he usually wins the two strike battles as seen by the back of his baseball card. It's going to have a lot of strikeouts on it. So, um, you know, it puts it all in perspective of it's just not easy to do what, what these guys do. And when the streaks they put together of dominance, um, we do tip our cap to it. And, and you know, now our job is to, to win a few games to get him the ball in game five. Yeah, we haven't seen him a ton in person. I mean, a little bit of spring training, which doesn't count. But he, he was clearly – um, the key, the key guy that we couldn't control tonight. His bat speed's electric. His energy in his body is as advertised. The um, he's calm in the moment. Clearly, this is not too big a stage for him. I think his, um, you know, he's taken big swings early on. Bounced back from the punch out. Had had three really good at bats. Big hits. Um, he was a difference in the game. And Juan Soto is part of the youth movement in Major League Baseball, and that's the best news for the league and for the casual baseball fan. We remind you, yes, Juan Soto's 20. Ronald Acuna Jr., Braves' sensational young talent is 21. Glaber Torres, New York Yankees' elite talent, 22. Pete Alonso, also in New York, plays for the Mets, hit 50 bombs. He is 24 years old. So there is some young, brash, confident, exciting players in this game. As per the Houston Astros, there was a hustle controversy in this game. Late George Springer looked like he had his second home run of the game, jogged down to first, ended up staying in the park. He stopped at second. People feel like this could have been a triple, and he might have scored on a Jose Altuve. Look, that's just theoretical. Too tough for me, given that George Springer has done something no player in the history the game has done. George Springer homered in his fifth straight World Series game, passing Lou Gehrig and Reggie Jackson. That is incredible. 14 postseason home runs for George Springer, a guy I would wager none of the audience that is a casual baseball fan has even ever heard of. Um, but the biggest takeaway for me, Ross, is the rust versus rest factor. I thought... If Washington came out flat, you could easily see this series going the wrong way quick. But when they come around and knock out Garrett Cole the way they did in game one, rust is not an issue. Rest may have really prevailed this day. I'm sticking with the Nats, and I'm happy about that pick. Well, yes, I'm with the Nats too. Um, not really a prediction as much as I'm a huge Nats fan, and I have been ever since Jackass Taubman did what he did uh, after the Astros won the ALCS. I've been a Nats fan, huge Nats fan for, was that, 48 hours, <laughs> 72 hours, until the Astros also flubbed it. How about the Astros calling into question the reporter's story? Like, are you guys morons? I mean, that, that was like a lesson in crisis management gone wrong. Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, but to your point, uh, I'm with the Nats. Look, Dave, Garrett Cole's the guy. Verlander's amazing. Granky's a good pitcher. 
But I think everyone that felt like the Astros were the favorites in this series and the heavy favorites, it's because they thought the Garrett Cole games aren't even worth talking about, that he's untouchable, he's unhittable, and that the Astros will definitely win those games. Well, that's evidently not the case. And it feels to me like strange things like this always happen in the baseball postseason, which is one of the things I love about it. I, I am a little confused, though. Maybe you know more about mm-hmm. this than me. Maybe we'll wait till the next time we talk to Kevin Mala, or maybe Landry's locker will know about it at 10 a.m. Eastern. But why isn't Cole pitching game four? Like, I, I thought the big dog that pitches game one pitches game four and then pitches game seven. Like, that's the way it always was growing up when I paid more attention to baseball before I got this awesome gig, home and home, radio.com sports, at RDC home and home. And I just heard A.J. Hinch say, we got to win a couple games so we can get him get him back out there game five. I don't know if I'm missing something, but I always I thought yeah. the value of not having to go to game seven was that you got Cole for three games if necessary, one, four, and seven. Yeah, you're right about that. We will have to ask Landry Locker about that. I guess they don't want to get him back on any type of anything resembling short rest. We'll have to get some more information about that. The story you bring up is one related to the closer for the Astros, Roberto Osuna. Now, for those of you that haven't been keeping track of this story, after the Nationals advanced to the World Series, a game in which, by the way, Roberto Asuna was taken out of the park by DJ LeMayhew. He did not pitch well in that game and, frankly, hasn't pitched that well in the postseason. But it was the assistant general manager for the Houston Astros, Brandon Taubman, who apparently turned to a group of female reporters and started yelling at the top of his lungs, and, and what we heard a half a dozen times, thank God we got Osuna. I'm so effing glad we got Osuna repeatedly over and over again in the direction of several female sports reporters. One who was wearing a purple domestic violence awareness bracelet. They were confused by the situation. They weren't exactly sure why that celebration or that yelling came at that moment and why it came at their direction. Sports Illustrated writer Stephanie Epstein wrote about this, and the Astros went after her the next day. That was yesterday, saying she mischaracterized the situation, and the story wasn't true. Well, since then, the Astros have issued a statement. Taubman has sort of apologized, but not entirely. Apologize for those of you who may have been offended. You've heard that halfway apology before. Roberto Asuna... The Astros signed after he was suspended 75 games for domestic abuse. He allegedly assaulted the mother of his then three-year-old child. So hurting the whole Astros characterization is this is NPR reported that contrary to the Astros statement, Taubman was targeting a specific female reporter who had frequently tweeted about domestic violence and the Astros handling of the Asuna situation. What an effing moron. This is the worst possible thing that any major sport can have. We've seen it too often with the NFL, but when a 
executive, when a player, when a coach, when a manager appears to not only not care about domestic violence, but apparently shove that in the face of female reporters. This is an ugly, ugly story for the Astros. They're actually hopeful that this story goes away and that everyone can focus on a loss in game one. There is no spinning it. And this pissed you off, huh, Ross? Absolutely. I mean, I I just think this guy is, in my mind, a coward. That is so passive aggressive. It's such a pathetic, pathetic, sad thing. Really what it comes down to is it's his deep down insecurity about the fact that they did sign Asuna and that they have gotten criticism as a result. Hey, uh, hey, Taubman. Put your big boy pants on, bro. You're gonna you're gonna have a guy like this that has 75 game suspension for whatever happened with the mother of his three year old. You're gonna get criticism, and guess what? That should be part of the conversation when you make the decision to acquire him. You should know. Okay, the pros are he's a pretty good pitcher. The negatives are we're gonna get some negative attention about this. Is it worth it? Yeah, no. Okay, we'll do it. We just got to know there's going to be some negativity that comes along with it. We got to be able to stomach that. Taubman can't stomach it. He couldn't take the heat. And so then he felt like after they won the pennant to go to the World Series, that gave him carte blanche to go ahead and shout this stuff. And a couple things too, Dave. Imagine that being your life. Imagine being that sad of a human being that your team gets a huge accomplishment. You win the ALCS against the Yankees. You're going to the World Series. And your natural default mechanism as a human being is to then try to be vengeful or spiteful towards women about domestic violence. Taubman, honestly, I don't care if they fire you or not. I don't care what they do with you. You got to live with yourself, bro. And that's the worst part of it. Imagine being Taubman's wife. Imagine being Taubman's wife. This is who your husband is deep down inside. Imagine being Taubman's parents. Where do we go wrong? Where, like, where do we fail here? The guy is a joke. There is a positive out of it, though, Dave. I now care more about the World Series than I did before. I don't know if it helps the ratings or not. I don't know if no. more people tune in, but I certainly think it's gotten more attention for the World Series. And I do think more people sort of have a, a vested interest and a rooting interest now against the Astros. So net-net, I guess there's some positives for Major League Baseball. But imagine being the Astros. And you finally get there. You get to the World Series, long season, and this is what people are talking about. Like, if I was anyone else on the Astros team, A.J. Hinch, any of the players, I would be furious, furious that that is what people are talking about as opposed to the accomplishment and the fact that we're hosting the World Series. What a joke that guy is. 
AJ Hintz was pretty strong. I mean, he didn't blast Taubman, but he did say enough saying, look, I think we can just do better than that. Um, I did not think this was a story that would resonate beyond the hardcore baseball fans. Not only have you proven me wrong, but seeing it on my other job, seeing it on CNN where I work four to 6 AM really caught me by surprise. I did. This is a network obsessed with impeachment at the moment. So it was surprising to see that penetrate the cable news airwaves, but look, Domestic violence, domestic assault is not one of those issues where you can mess around. And our producer, Joey Gelman, points out this guy's 34. He's not some 65-year-old, 70-year-old that's been around the game far, far too long. He's relatively young guy, new to all this. And I thought, again, like we're in our 40s, in their 30s, I thought they were a whole new kind of enlightened even than us. So it is shocking to see that type of ignorance. And it's one of those unforced errors that you preach so strongly against if you are in politics, if you are in business. This story was over. No one was talking about Osuna's domestic violence, even though they should have. 75-game suspension, and the Astros sign him immediately, a guy that beat the wife of his child. Uh, it was a story that had been dead and gone, and you bring it back up. You put it back on the front page. I don't think it will distract this organization. A very good clubhouse the Houston Astros have. Leaders like Jose Altuve, a terrific pitching staff. But it is not a good look for the Houston Astros. Neither is the fact that back to the baseball of it, it's Steven Strasburg in game two, who's been historic in his young postseason career. One of the best in the history of this game goes up against Justin Verlander, who, yes, we all know is one of the top pitchers in the game, but he is 0-4, 5-6-7 ERA and five World Series starts. So the numbers, at least right now, favor the Nationals. I like the Nationals to begin with because I'm so tired of all the divisiveness and anger and hate in Washington, D.C. I was hoping for something to unite them, as well as you know how much I like the baby shark chant that we will hear Friday night, game three in D.C., Ross. Love it. Love that chant. Love that the Nationals won game one. Gigantic Nationals fan for 72 hours now, I believe. And I hope we, we can do it, Dave. I hope we can win this series. I think we can get it done. Um, I, I'm, I'm going we. I'm going. You know what else I'm going, Dave? Before we talk to Sam Munson, I'm going ZipRecruiter. Have I told you about Dylan Miskowitz? If you're a loyal listener, you've probably never heard me say anything about Dylan Miskowitz before. He needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic co coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates, you get them fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter, said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. That's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. 
Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ziprecruiter.com slash enter. That's ziprecruiter.com slash E-N-T-E-R. ZipRecruiter.com slash enter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The LA Clippers wanted to win a title. They hired Kawhi Leonard, and he responded last night in the NBA opener. We'll get to the Lakers-Clippers game. Also the latest on Zion and the NBA China takes to another level. Shaq and Charles Barkley both weighing in. But after a quick break... Welcome our friends from Pro Football Focus. Sam Monson tells us who is the number one graded quarterback after week seven. And you might be stunned. It is not Aaron Rodgers, despite a perfect QB rating. We'll tell you who is and everything else going on in the NFL. Week seven with Sam Monson after a break. Back on home and home and no place better to get all your NFL information than Pro Football Focus. Check them out. PFF.com. Ten bucks a month. That's it. Forty bucks Per year, let's talk about all things Week Seven with Sam Monson from Pro Football Focus. Sam, good to see you, man. Dave Briggs, Ross Tucker. I always love looking at the QB grades. I'm obsessed with them, like a lot of people are. I just assumed that Aaron Rodgers, his first perfect quarterback rate of his career, was an easy number one, given that Russell Wilson threw his first INT this season in a loss. How is Wilson ahead of Rodgers? Well, it's it's the whole body of work. If you look at just week seven, that's exactly where Aaron Rodgers is. He's top of the NFL. And that really was a phenomenal performance, exactly as you said. His grade was incredible last week. It's, you know, he Rodgers is really cooking right now. He's on fire. Kirk Cousins also had another fantastic week in week seven. The repair job he's done on a season is pretty much incredible. But over the entire season, with everything involved, Russell Wilson still, the, the full body of work still puts him right up at the sharp end. Uh, by the way, Sam, I love, for those of you that are just listening, I love that you have my grades from my time as a player behind you over your your left shoulder, <laughs> just pluses across the board. Um, That's exactly what it is. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. I think that was every game I ever played, probably just double pluses, double pluses. Uh, but you yeah. mentioned Kirk Cousins. And I'm glad you did, Sam, because it's unbelievable. It's like the Cousins coaster. He either sucks or he's awesome in the court of public opinion. It seems like there's nothing in between. That's where PFF comes in. That's where you guys are valuable because you try to remove the emotion from it and just grade every player, every play. Talk to me about Kirk Cousins. Is he playing that much better? than he was earlier, or is he just playing a little bit better and it's just the results are different? No, he really is playing that much better. It's actually incredible. We were saying all the way along that the amazing thing about Cousins, the, the roller coaster is not inaccurate. He is very, very hot or very, very cold and doesn't tend to spend too much time in the middle. But what's incredible is that every single season that shakes out to about the same level, you know, overall, over 16 games, if you look at his PFF grade, basically every single season of his starting career, it ends up in the same band. It ends up somewhere between 70 and 80, 81 overall PFF grade. And when he was playing so badly for the first few weeks of this season, we were saying, look, if he's going to get back to that level of you know mid-70s grade by the end of the year, he's going to have some pretty impressive grades somewhere along the line to pull this back up. And that's exactly what's happened. It's, it's kind of the reverse of a year ago where he started the season on fire, looked absolutely incredible. 
and then the wheels kind of fell off and, and all the unsustainable things went away and went, went in the other direction. And suddenly Kirk Cousins kind of sucks towards the end of the year, but ultimately you end up in the same place, which is over 16 games. Cousins is, you know, an above average to average quarterback. It's just how he gets there is this incredible roller coaster ride every year. Boy, are you right about that? Look at week one. You had Kirk Cousins win a game with 10 attempts. Lamar Jackson threw five touchdowns in week one, and he has fallen on a bit of hard times, at least in terms of the throwing numbers, just nine completions in the win at Seattle. Look, I admit I've been skeptical all along of Lamar Jackson's ability to win a game with his arm. There were some drop passes in Seattle Sunday. What are you seeing on the tape that makes him number eight just behind Kirk Cousins? Yeah, and again, it's you know it's the whole body of work. I think you do have to factor in the drop passes up in Seattle. It was rain up there. Mark Andrews, like he couldn't catch anything in that game. And Mark Andrews is his number one receiver. You know, he's his primary go-to guy. And it's interesting because obviously the first couple of weeks, Lamar Jackson was fantastic, but he was unlikely to ever sustain that level of play. It was kind of it was like he'd hit his ceiling all in one offseason. And the chances were he was going to come back down to earth a little bit. Um, you know, his he's such an effective, such a dangerous runner. And it's such a huge part of that offense that he doesn't need to be as good a passer as these other guys down to down for them to be really effective and really dangerous. He just needs to be a little bit more efficient than he was a year ago. And I think he has been. He's definitely taken big steps forward, particularly, you know, from within the pocket. If you look at these straight drop back passes. Um, you know, no play action, no pressure, no rolling out, nothing, no trickery or anything like that. Lamar is a massive step forward this year than he was a season ago. And I think he just needs to increase the, the overall accuracy just a little bit. He doesn't need, you know, to turn into Drew Brees or Tom Brady or a guy that's going to hit 75, 80 percent of his uh, passes accurately. You know, you adjust for the drops and all that kind of thing. He doesn't need to be that guy. He just needs to be a little bit better than he has been. Sam, I'm curious, you know, I, I know I'm aware of your grading system. I had uh, dinner with Gradkowski a couple weeks ago. I've talked to you about it before. How do you grade what Lamar Jackson brings to the table as a runner? I'm curious about that. And I guess along with that, in all your time, have you seen an NFL team commit to the quarterback-based, quarterback-centric run game like this? Yeah, not, certainly not as much as the Ravens have. And I think you have to give them big credit for that because all the way through the pre-draft process, we were saying, look, there is a pathway to NFL success for Lamar Jackson. It just doesn't look like the same pathway for any other quarterback in this draft. They're going to need to do something unique to take advantage of what he does well and minimize what he does badly. And the Ravens embraced that. You know, they took this guy, they developed this offense off to the side while Joe Flacco was kind of running you know, the conventional base offense. And then eventually they made the shift and they got rid of Flacco. They pivoted 100% to Lamar. And you're, you're seeing this offense that nobody else in the NFL runs. And it's successful because of what Lamar Jackson can do and what he can bring to the table. And, you know, we grade those running plays, um, you know, kind of the same way we grade running backs, which is to say, let's try and distill what Lamar Jackson is doing as distinct from the blocking. So, you know, if it's a wide open run into open field and he doesn't have to do anything to pick up yardage, we're not going to give him credit for that. But if he has to make a guy miss or if he has to 
you know, put turn on the jets to beat a guy to space. You know, if he has to do something above and beyond what you expect the the blocking to have given him, then we give him credit for those runs. And, and he's grading exceptionally well, obviously, um, as a rushing threat. Can't wait to see Lamar Jackson against the Patriots defense. I am team Jacoby Brissett. We're talking with Sam Monson from Pro Football Focus. I think this guy should be considered in the MVP conversation. No one Whoa. agrees with me. I am not a fan of Jimmy Garoppolo. You have a column up right now about buying and selling on winning teams. You are buying on the Niners despite the subpar play of Jimmy Garoppolo. Explain to me how he is 16. And all the way down there at 27 is Jacoby Brissett, who has outplayed Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, and has one fewer touchdown than uh, than Mahomes and then Russell Wilson. Well, I'm not sure that Jacoby Brissett outplayed Patrick Mahomes as much as the Indianapolis Colts were able to outplay Kansas City Chiefs. Obviously, the quarterback is a big part of that. But, you know, Jacoby Brissett is essentially a – he's Alex Smith again. You know, he is a game-managing-style quarterback – doesn't put the ball in harm's way very often and doesn't make that many big time throws. He's not a guy that's going to add a ton of value to what the offense is already doing, but he's definitely capable of steering the ship. Um, and that's that's all the Colts really needed this year. That's the kind of tragedy of um, Andrew Luck walking away is that this was the best roster he was ever on and we never got to see what he could do with it. But Jacoby Brissett was arguably the best backup quarterback in the NFL, which makes him automatically you know, a viable starting quarterback of some capacity. And we're seeing that he's able to play well within that offense. And it's actually set up quite well for a game managing style of quarterback. A guy who's just not going to make that many mistakes. Um, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo, I think, has more to his game. He's capable of doing more than Jacoby Brissett is. We just haven't necessarily seen that much of it this season. But the reason I think that that's actually a good thing for the 49ers is they're winning anyway. You know, and if he does end up getting back to the kind of play we saw very early in his career, now the 49ers are scary because the defense is playing well, the system is functioning anyway, and if Jimmy Garoppolo starts to add value to that, if he starts to make those throws he made earlier in his career and starts to limit the mistakes, now they become really scary because there's no weakness. Sam, as you know, I do a lot of stuff in the Philadelphia area, and every week, no matter what, Carson Wentz, is a hot topic. You guys still have him ranked number four. Uh, I think he's playing okay. I think he's playing well. He doesn't feel like the fourth best quarterback in the NFL to me right now. What have you seen from him the last couple weeks? Yeah, I think the last couple of weeks has definitely taken some of the shine off where he was. You know, we had him ranked as the number one quarterback for a good portion of the early part of this season. Obviously, he's come down a little bit. And as we said last time, you know, he's this intriguing quarterback because he does it in a strange way. You know, he's good at the things that you're not supposed to be sustainably good at, whether it's these big plays on third down, whether it's the deep stuff where he's putting the ball, um, you know, making these big time throws that his receivers aren't necessarily coming up with. Those are the low percentage plays that most quarterbacks struggle with. And they make up for it by being really good at the, the easy stuff, the, the kind of down-to-down routine plays. That's where he struggles a little bit more, but makes up with it or makes up for it with these crazy um, big plays. And even in the game against Dallas, we saw examples of this, right? You know, he puts the ball deep down the field. And for some reason, Nelson Aguilar decided, you know what, it's not worth catching this one. I'm just going <laughs> to let it drop. Um, but that's kind of what he's been dealing with all the way through this season. 
you can point to multiple games where he put the game-winning touchdown pass in his receiver's hands only to see it hit the ground. And, you know, PFF, we get to credit him for those throws. The result didn't happen, but it wasn't because of the throw that Carson Wentz made. And I think that's a big part of why his grade is a little, there's a, a kind of discrepancy between his PFF grade and the kind of box score numbers and maybe the win-loss record as well. That's a really good point, Sam. We've got the trade deadline coming up in a week or so, and I wanted to get your thoughts on some of the trades that that already went down. Mohamed Sanu from the Falcons to the Patriots for a second-round pick. How highly do you guys have graded Sanu, and how much of a difference do you think he makes for New England? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because I think Sanu at his best is a very good receiver, but his PFF grade has declined each of the last three years. This is this would be the fourth sort of season um, on a steady downward curve. Now, some of that can obviously be explained by the fact that the Falcons offense has gotten worse uh, each season. You know, Matt Ryan hasn't hit those MVP heights, heights again. Matt Ryan this season is playing worse than he ever has. So you kind of expect the, uh, the receiver play to decline as well. Now he goes to New England where obviously there's a proven system. There's a proven quarterback there. I can definitely see his grade bouncing back. Um, you know, he's a talented receiver. He's big. He's fast. He runs good routes. He's got that incredible trick playability. Like Mohamed Sanu in his NFL career has three or four of the best passes that anybody has completed in, in the past sort of five, six years. He's actually incredible throwing the deep ball. So I, that'll be fun to see if they they break out some trickery there. Obviously, Edelman is already there as a guy that can throw the ball. But Mahuk, uh, Mohamed Sanu can uncork like a 50-yard deep pass like it's nothing. Mo Sanu, like Emmanuel Sanders, goes from an awful situation, a team going nowhere fast to a straight to the top of their respective leagues. It should be a very interesting change of scenery for both of those guys. How much better does Sanders make the Niners offense? A lot of expectations for Debo Samuel have not been realized. How desperately are they or desperate are they for a wide receiver? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I don't know that we know the answer to it yet. You know, the 49ers obviously haven't had this number one wide receiver, but I don't know that they, they a, a, I don't think they need one, and B, I don't know that they even want one because they're strong in other areas. You know, George Kittle essentially is their number one receiver. Obviously, Kyle Juszczyk is this incredible dynamic mismatch weapon out of the backfield when he's out there. So they've, they've got these mismatch weapons and these problems in the passing game for opposing defenses, they just haven't been a wide receiver. Um, and now we're kind of going to get a, get this answer, right? What happens when you put a receiver out there that is a proven top 15 caliber kind of guy? And, you know, Sanders is coming off an Achilles tear, which usually puts those skill position guys down for a huge period of time. He did this, you know, less than a year ago, has a top 15 grade of PFF. This season was top 10 a couple of weeks ago before Joe Flacco had some really awful games, um, and he's definitely a, a guy that can add to that offense. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how much they feed him the ball, how much they feature him compared with guys like Kittle, you know, and how much they kind of alter the offense to actually get the ball in the hands of their wideouts rather than just their dynamic um, receivers that play other positions. 
Oh, sorry. I was thinking Ross was going to pick this up. I wanted to get one quick question in on Melvin Gordon, 2.3 yards per carry, uh, fumbles on the one-yard line. What happened to him this year? Yeah, I mean, a big part of it is the situation isn't as good as it was last year. You know, that offensive line with the Chargers is bad. I think when what he did last year was pretty incredible. You know, it, it wasn't good a year ago either. So for him to be able to have the production he had last year was A, remarkable, and B, more importantly, unsustainable, non-repeatable. So the chances of him doing it again this year were always going to be minimal. And I think we're just seeing this natural regression back to what is supposed to happen when you're trying to rush behind a subpar offensive line. You know, running backs, we've been preaching this at PFF for a long time. Largely speaking, running backs are a product of their environment. If you have terrible blocking, those guys are not going to be successful time after time. It's just too hard to do. And then the flip side, obviously, is if you have dominant run blocking, almost anybody is going to get, be able to have good production because all of these running backs at the NFL level are talented. So as soon as you give them creases, as soon as you give them rushing lanes, they're going to have success. So I think we're just seeing Melvin Gordon's situation. It's been bad for a long time and it's finally starting to catch up. To them. All right, Sam, I thought I was done. I, I'm not, I, I can't get enough of you, dude. I need a couple more. All right. <laughs> I got to ask you Tannehill and Bridgewater only a one game sample size from Tannehill but it looked a lot better than Mariota. And then we got a bigger sample size for Bridgewater. And I'm just curious what the grade is there and whether or not he's doing enough to be put in the conversation for starter, either in New Orleans, if Breeze retires or elsewhere after this year. Yeah, I think I, I tweeted about the Tannehill Mariota thing on Monday. And look, I don't think Tannehill is a massive upgrade. But at some point, you just have to say, look, what Marcus Mariota is doing is so bad, we need to make the point that this is not okay. And there were throws in that game that Tannehill made that Marcus Mariota just isn't even attempting anymore. And I think that alone makes it the right decision. You know, it may not all be good, but at least this guy is doing what we want him to do, attempting the passes we want him to attempt and, you know, making the throws that he should make. For Bridgewater, I think his season has been really interesting because the evidence was starting to mount that Bridgewater was not the same guy he was back in Minnesota before he got that devastating injury. You know, every time he'd, he'd taken either mop-up duty at the end of games or, you know, a Week 17 start where the Saints had nothing to play for or even preseason, it didn't look good. It, it looked like a bad Teddy Bridgewater. Now, obviously, there was always mitigating circumstances like playing with the second-team offensive line. It's not, you know, the best circumstance in the world, but it wasn't looking great. But And it started off this when he was starting not looking great either. Um, they were winning games anyway, but at the very beginning, I think they were winning in spite of Bridgewater, not necessarily because of him. He just wouldn't put the ball deep down the field. Everything was a check down, and he wasn't that accurate with the check down stuff. But as he's gone on, it's like he's knocked off the rust. He's remembered what he used to be. He's you know, developed his deep game again. He's now willing to take those shots that he wasn't willing to take earlier in this year. And honestly, I think it's really been positive for him because now you're looking at Bridgewater and you're saying, okay, you know, he's not Drew Brees, but he's a viable starter. If they had to go the rest of this year with Teddy Bridgewater as their starting quarterback, they would not be in a bad spot. So I think that's great for him because yes, he's a potential Brees successor because we've just seen you know, how this thing works with him at the helm. 
but he's now also a you know potential option for other teams out there that need a quarterback. So Chicago, for example, you know the, yeah. the Mitch Trubisky experiment is it looks like a failure. It looks like a disaster at this stage. They don't have a great spot in terms of draft capital to make a new Trubisky-style move, but maybe a Bridgewater makes sense—a guy that they can bring in to steer the ship and you know look for a, a long-term answer. I, I, yeah, I think this season starting has really rejuvenated Teddy Bridgewater's long-term future. The guy's still only 26, remember. Certainly looks like a viable starter in this league. Sam Monson, Pro Football Focus, just 10 bucks a month, 40 bucks a year, pff.com. Follow him on, tw- on Twitter, at PFFSam. Good to see you, my friend. Thank you for the time. Anytime, guys. Take it easy. All right, so the rich do get richer as the 49ers acquire Emmanuel Sanders from the Broncos. And, of course, the Patriots get Mo Sanu uh, from the Atlanta Falcons. I think Emmanuel Sanders Ross, in my book, Broncos Bias, is a better wide receiver, but a far bigger trade, if you ask me, for the Patriots than it was for the Niners. I'm not entirely convinced Jimmy Garoppolo can utilize any any wide receiver at this point. They have a decent crop right now. Who do you think won the day? Well, what I think is interesting about it is I think the reason why Sanu got uh, was gotten for a second-round pick is probably twofold, Dave. Number one, it sounds like the Niners, with Kyle Shanahan, who coached Muhammad Sanu, was, were, were really interested in Sanu, probably because Shanahan had a comfort level there and knew that Sanu would be able to pick things up right away you know, not having previously coached Emmanuel Sanders, maybe there's a little bit more of a ramp-up period there. I think as a result, the Falcons were able to get a second-round pick from New England when I'm not sure Sanu would have gotten that. Now, he also is under contract through the 2020 season. So it does give the acquiring team, in this case the Patriots, more flexibility than getting Sanders does for the Niners because this is the last year of Emmanuel Sanders deal. I just think it's interesting, Dave, that there's been so much conversation, so much scrutiny about the Miami Dolphins' plan to pretty clearly not make winning games in 2019 the number one priority. Their number one priority is sustained success in 2020 and beyond. I just think it's interesting that the Broncos and the Falcons are basically saying the same thing now, seven games in. I mean, you trade Sanu, and I think they should do it for a second-round pick. You trade Emmanuel Sanders, you're making it very clear to the organization and the fans that winning games the rest of this season is no longer the priority. I'm not mad at him, Dave. I don't have a problem with it. I just think it's funny that the Dolphins get all this attention and we have two other teams that just did it seven games into the season. They got more than half the season to play, and yet they've already made that very, very clear. You can see the tweet at Ross Tucker NFL for those of you that are watching on the radio.com app or radio.com slash home. And I guess my question to you, Dave, is do you agree with me on that? And I got to follow up after that. But do you agree that it's a little bit weird that all we talk about is the Dolphins and tanking and blah, blah, blah. But now we get other teams just seven games in that are already making it pretty clear that they're kind of done with this year. 
I got no problem with it. I think Chris Harris is next. It breaks my heart as a Bronco fan to see one of the elite corners in the game be gone, but they have to trade him. It looks like he wants out in the last year of his contract, see what they can get. But don't, for the life of you, John Elway, get rid of Von Miller. Hang on to that franchise cornerstone. I don't mind that the Miami Dolphins are tanking. Look, this is the win-now league or lose-big-now league. We all know that being in the middle is an absolute disaster in all professional sports. You do what you got to do. I mean, look at just giving up what the Rams did for Jalen Ramsey tells you how desperate teams are to win absolutely right now. So you are either mortgaging the future or you are cutting bait very, very fast. And I, I guess I would do the same thing if I were the Denver Broncos, provided you don't entirely lose your locker room one and lose your fan base two. And if you're the Denver Broncos and you get rid of Von Miller, you probably lose both in one fell swoop. Well, that was going to be my question to you, Dave. You kind of answered it. But as a Broncos fan, you're okay with your team basically making it clear that winning games the rest of this season is no longer a priority. Like, you're you're on board with that. I don't like it. I don't think this is a very good football team. I, I never thought Joe Flacco was the answer. He went out and proved that to all of us by losing to Matt Moore. So what is the best-case scenario for the Denver Broncos? Maybe. Maybe, and I don't even think it's likely they somehow get a wild card. I still think that's highly unlikely. So what's the point of playing out the string? Let's start building this organization for next year. You don't like the approach? No, I'm fine with it. I, but I'm not, a, I'm not a Broncos fan. You know what I mean? Mm. And by the way, I have a Broncos fan who's here in central Pennsylvania. Good friend of mine. He wants him to lose every game to get a higher draft pick, and he wants Drew Locke on the field as soon as possible so they can find out what they have in yeah. Drew Locke. My question for you, and I'll ask him sometime, it, it, it feels like a rebuilding job now for the Broncos. And, and do you think John Elway should be the one to do the rebuild? You can't. You just can't let it happen. Look, I, I have told people this before. I have... I have an, a basement built to honor John Elway. I have multiple shrines in the Briggs household. Autograph helmet, autograph jersey, Sports Illustrated's all over the place. Pictures of John Elway, my favorite athlete in the history of all professional sports and a disaster as an executive. You cannot let this guy continue to run this organization into the ground. You cannot let him select another quarterback he has proven time and time again that he cannot select a quarterback. Look, I would like to see what Drew Locke has, but I don't think we're going to know from all uh, NFL analysts coming out of college. We weren't sure. He just wasn't the finished product. I think you're not going to know what you have in Drew Locke for at least another year. You cannot let John Elway do the rebuild, but it would be interesting. Mark Kisla from the Denver Post said, why not bring Peyton Manning in and let him try and rebuild the Broncos. I don't know if Peyton would want to succeed John Elway. Uh, yeah, you know what? That's an interesting one. Peyton lives in Denver, uh, which is interesting, I think, that that's where he chose to, 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 to live. And everybody says he wants ownership and he wants to run a front office. I, I You know, it would be nice to stay there. And with everything going on with the transition of ownership, he could probably get a small piece of the team from the bull. Yep. But 
What has he done Nothing. to earn that? Nothing. You know, Same thing is that like he was a great player. What what has he earned that you're like giving him ownership to be the GM? Like I, I wouldn't give him a, a, a share of equity, not a single share. Yeah, I would I, I would prefer they go in the way of an advanced NFL executive, but the, the organization, much like the Atlanta Falcons, clearly starting the rebuild. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we will touch on the NBA season opener, Lakers and Clippers. How about Kawhi Leonard and that Clippers bench just dominated the Lakers. That's the factor that might decide who the best team in that town is. Also, Ghostgate continues why the Jets are mad at ESPN and NFL Films. And straight up, Andy Bunker, 92.9 from Atlanta, to tell us what happened, Atlanta Falcons. <laughs> How long can Dan Quinn last? We'll go to Atlanta after a break. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. <laughs> 